Welcome to After Credits here on the Intercut Podcast channel where we review a new movie including everything that comes after the credits. I am your co-host Zachary Shevich and joining me, he wants Christmas lights for his Hanukkah present. It's Arturo Zurita. See, I, I heard that line in the movie and I, I just went, don't you get eight presents technically for like more days? I don't, I don't know if the math mats up there, but uh, I'm excited to talk about what I consider my personal best picture of the year. There are a lot of movies that come out on a yearly basis, but there was something about sitting there with the craftsman. That is Spielberg making the most personal film after making so many personal films. And I just, I don't know. I, I came out of this movie completely floored. You had seen it at TIFF and we're hyping up so many moments. Uh, several people were hyping up several moments by spoiling them that it's still hit. And that's a sign of a great movie. Uh, and I, I'm excited to talk about, not just the non-spoilers, but all the spoilery bits that take us back to not just yeah. Spielberg's filmography, but technically our childhood since we grew up watching all of his movies. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting because I think there's this perception of what Spielberg is trying to do here and that, like, oh, it's this fluffy nostalgia piece and it's about the magic of movies. And I think he's actually making a film that's a, a way more complex than that, has it way is. more nuances to it. And it, it's a fascinating piece, especially considering it coming this late in his career and why something that is so deeply personal to him took him 35 movies to get to. We'll, we'll get into all of that and some spoilery details a little bit later, but let's start with some non-spoiler discussion about The Fablemans, because this is the return of Steven Spielberg, perhaps the world's greatest living filmmaker, and giving us his most personal film yet, The Fablemans tells the story of Sammy Fableman, a young man who grows up being whisked from suburb to suburb by his family, um, by his hardworking uh, and brilliant computer scientist father, as well as his fun-loving and eccentric stay-at-home pianist mother. Through them, young Sammy acquires a love of film at an early age, recreating the iconic train crash from Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth using his father's 8mm camera. But as he grows older, Sammy learns that being a great filmmaker and being a great son won't always align. Spielberg here is printing the legend of Spielberg, mining his own memories to tell the story of how a great artist acquires his direction, pun intended. Yet the film is far more interesting than a simple nostalgia play. Spielberg imbues his coming-of-age story with moments of wonder, action set pieces, notes of existential horror, and plenty of filmmaking humor. It's a wonderfully joyful new film and deserves to be recognized as one of 2022's best films. But I've said all of this before on Intercut. Arturo, you've had the chance to see it. You, you've heaped praise upon praise on this movie. So tell me, does The Fablemans live up to the legacy of Steven Spielberg? I think this is a man who's had a legacy that's so big. When you look back at the stuff he's made in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he spent all of the 2000s trying to, like, recoup that. And I would say, like, from the from past 05, all the 2010s, a new movie would come out and we would always be like, is this going to be the one to give us that Spielberg magic? And every single time, here on Intercut at least, we would come back going, I got close. It's still good. It's Spielberg. Yeah. But it didn't feel like that, that not even nostalgia, I want to say, but like that magic that he used to have. There's stuff he's he does so in this movie. Yeah, and he's it is so the way he ends he... this movie. It's back. 
he's so, so good at what he does that even when it feels like a minor L effort from Spielberg, there's a lot that you can latch onto from the yes, filmmaking sir. to just some of the shots to just the production value. Uh, but I think we, as you're saying, have been waiting for that great mix of him handling the right material with the right script and giving it that Spielbergian f flourish. And it's yeah. all here in The Fablemans. On top of that, you mentioned that he hasn't worked on this script, or this was the first script he's worked on since AI, if I'm not mistaken. And that was yeah. one where it was, uh, what's his name, Kubrick, uh, knowing that he wasn't going to be around for it, that he's the one who chose Spielberg as the predecessor to be able to continue that story. So that's already 20-something years uh, that it's taken him to come back just for the script writing elements of it. I hear then that the way that they filmed it wasn't necessarily improvising, but there was a lot of moments where they were figuring out on set uh, and seeing all the cast and crew just pretty much spill the beans on what he's like on set. I think it's been one of the most fascinating things because his direction for this movie where he's directing a kid and how he started directing is like the most visceral and vulnerable uh, places to see him in uh, at work. So I don't know. I was just fascinated by it. I like that he calls it. Uh, he says it's not therapeutic. It's cathartic. Yeah. For sure. And uh, I think Seth Rogen told the story of how Spielberg was frequently crying on the set of The Fablemans. I, yeah. I can imagine, you know, especially talk, tackling all this material so late on in his life. I think some people have made a note about it's interesting that he waited until after his parents passed away to tackle this material. Because I think, yeah, he, he's kind of, it, it, while he is honoring his parents and it is the film is dedicated to both of them, it does sort of treat them as messy parental figures who maybe aren't always making the best decisions. And I think That's awesome. for, for him to feel that freedom to maybe handle this story in that way, he decided to wait until they were not around so he didn't have to face them or whatever psychological yeah. uh, thing you want to pin on it. But uh, yeah, I, I do think it's allowed him to tackle the material in a way that feels very honest. Yeah, there's a big through line in the movie that's something that he said he's held as a secret and kept it to the grave. Uh, both of his parents have passed, and I think that, that there's a, I think, I want to say it's 60 Minutes breakdown where she got to talk to his parents and then plays that clip to Steven, and he sees it, and he's laughing at it because he's like, this movie would be the third clip then because it's me kind of opening up to them what I knew the entire time. We'll get mm -hmm. to that when it gets into the spoilers, but just talking about the casting for his parents, I thought they did an impeccable job. Uh, we've been discussing on whether who's considered actor, who's considered supporting, what the studio submits, that's neither here or there, but Michelle Williams, uh, as the mother, I think knocked that out of the park. I believe they're trying to uh, push her as a lead, and mm -hmm. I would say that... There's three stories going on here, that of a family and a divorce, that of an artist realizing where he needs to hold his values, and then a nostalgic, almost fourth wall breaking love letter from one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Sticking mm -hmm. to that first side of it, a lot of people have been very confused with a story that's about divorce but the family still loves each other. I'm trying to figure mm -hmm. out what this disconnect has been. And I feel that that's one of them besides the casting is that you have this family who has elements of different troubles going on. And yet they're always there supporting each other in, in varying degrees. And I think people expected more of a drama where they're yelling at each other and tearing right. each other apart. So I, I, I don't know if it's a, a matter of that's not how they've experienced divorce. So it was <laughs> weird to them. But then I know another factor of it has been the casting in it. A lot of people feel that she is, 
I don't know. I think it's interesting to critique someone's mother because um, mm-hmm. <laughs> she yeah. feels like a real person. And I think people don't reflect back on their own parents as people. They reflect back on them as these beings who took care of them. But this is a full grown man whose parents have now passed and he knows how to direct his mommy, not as the mother, <laughs> but as a woman who had her own ideals, as a woman who wasn't perfect, as a woman yeah. who uh, had her own passions. I thought he directed them beautifully. I know that there's been a problem with Paul Dano. Paul Dano was number one <laughs> on Netflix this past week for Prisoners. I get it. Yeah. Paul Dano was just one of the biggest villains from a Batman movie this year. S- some people see Paul Dano's this year. <laughs> some people see Paul Dano's face and expect him to get punched. So I understand that because Barbarian this year kind of did a play on the casting of Pennywise and kind of mm-hmm. playing on that factor that you knew him as evil. Scar, scar. So I can't really say that you coming into this movie as a regular moviegoer. Having seen him in only crazy things like that and then kind of be taken aback. I don't think it's the proper way to look at it. And if you're a movie critic who I did see a couple of movie critics come in saying that you don't deserve this job. But for the regular moviegoer, (laughs) you know, movie filmmakers do use that. They use the context of where you may know the person as and flip it on them. It kind of sucks here. You know, I I see a lot of people trying to belittle, uh, you know, moviegoers for uh, attaching him to another better known role. But that happens. Um, Yeah. I wish it didn't because I think that he plays such a nuanced character here. You see him as kind of like the background character and that it's really a love letter to the mom. Mm-hmm. Now nah, he's got the opening line and he's got the closing goodbye, dad. And I yeah. think it's a little bit bigger than that. I can't wait to talk spoilers with these two. But nonetheless, both performers did a fantastic job. Paul Dano, I'm rooting for supporting. I know y'all have a lot of people for lead on actress. But Michelle killed it. Yeah. Michelle killed it. They're both really excellent here, and I think a lot of the criticism about them is is a little bit misguided or, or unfounded, at least. Uh, there's been people who criticize how how big Michelle Williams' performance is, how, how period-y you the voice is, because that that's the thing. And if you actually go and look at clips of Spielberg's mom, and there are plenty on Oscars? YouTube, it's, it's pretty easy to find them. <laughs> he, like she's kind she of nailing it. the performance, yeah. Yeah, she is. And again, it's like... I. That's Spielberg's mom, and you're like, I don't know, she's not acting like my mom. I'm like, what are you reviewing at that point? I'm like, I think he knows what his mom was like the most. But there is plenty of footage to see out there, and there's plenty of footage of the father, too, and how somber he was. And I think Paul Dano gets that down uh, beautifully, especially because they both represent the two sides, the dreamer and the tech, that made Spielberg who he is. Yeah, absolutely. And and just funny being with uh, getting back into the Paul Dano thing that people seem to really want to associate him as the kind of crazy uh, potential uh, hostile guy who he is though. who He's kind I of mean, he, he <laughs> does it really well. And there's a reason he's so often cast in that. But it also kind of shows your limit limited experience with him in that maybe you uh, don't associate him with things like Little Miss Sunshine or things like Swiss Army yeah. Man or things like Ruby Sparks or, or things like. Uh, what's the other one that was just on my mind? Um, the Love and Mercy one, where he plays oh, uh, sure. uh, Brian uh, Brian Wilson, From Beach Boys. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we also know him as a director of Wildlife, right? And he's a yeah. guy who does have a lot of range. And while there is something to be said, I think like the idea of star studies and the pa- the baggage that actors carry from role to role that allows people to view them in a certain way, the way that like you see the rock and you instantly think of this like big uh, dude who's, but you should, because that's all he wants. <laughs> right. But like, I think I, I get the reason to, I get feeling like Dano is maybe not the best fit for the role here, but if you're just trying to like, 
take in the performance and take the movie for what it is and not bring your own baggage into the film. He's so excellent here and so heartfelt that there's so much uh, so much pain and and kind of like pushed oh down boy. suffering in the delivery of every one of his lines. It's it's a very very good performance. Uh, I don't know think if he's I'd that go... big, but without mm. him, the movie doesn't get five stars for me. Absolutely, and he it, it, he's the quiet, steady center of the film, while other people yeah. are having bigger emotional moments. And you put uh, it well. The Rock is always going to give you the same performance. There's no mm-hmm. Rock movie you're missing to be like, wow, I didn't know he had it in him. I think you're right. A lot of people have not seen his other roles yeah. and I would implore you to do so. Yeah. Uh, great actors. Both of them liked them a lot. Would love to see them both nominated. I don't know if I'd go as far as you in seeing them both win. Uh, but when just diving a little bit more into the Oscars before we get to some more uh, spoilery details, uh, I love the Judd Hirsch performance. I've seen some people pitch that. I feel like maybe it's a little too small of a performance for supporting actor. Uh, but otherwise, like I, if there was like an award for best scene in a film all year, I, I would maybe give that to the Boris scene. I, it really is so wonderful and the, kind of the like the heartbeat of this film. Every year we have one. Last year would have been Harriet Sampson Harris, and she right. would be passing it on to Judd Hirsch, who really just he just comes in here. And he's just like, I don't know, he's a fableman in and of himself. I don't know if you've heard yeah. him talk about the role, but he pre- pretty much came in and was told, change this kid's life like my uncle did back when uh, he came into the room <laughs> after my my, my, my uh, grandmother had died. Do something that will change his life. And he's like, what? Right. What am I supposed <laughs> to do here? I'm coming in as this magician who's going to change this kid. And I- I'm under the belief that whole sequence with him ripping his shirt and all of that. Which Spielberg says actually happened. Know. They, but the kid didn't know that that was how it was going <laughs> to yeah. play out so that there were moments where Judd Hirsch was like, I don't know if I'm going to see this kid again. This may be my only <laughs> moment with this new actor. Uh, yeah. I hope I can give him some wisdom if he is beginning his career in Hollywood the same way that uh, Steven himself was beginning it uh, at that yeah. part of the story. There I, like are a bun- I like the energy he brought. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that Judd Hirsch was uh, really, really excellent in the role and, you know, gets kind of some of the very key lines. Some of my favorite quotes from the film are his uh, his teachings about balancing family and art. And it, again, art that really does speak, does really speak to the, I think the, the crux of this film being that this pursuit of art that Spielberg is beginning, or that Sammy Fableman, at least, is beginning here, is something that is going to drive a wedge between his uh, his personal life and his artistic life. And there will be moments that we talk about later where you really see uh, how how the artist brain takes over in in some very personal moments. For a lot of characters, yeah, yeah. Um, also, we've been kind of talking around it, but Gabriel LaBelle in the role of Sammy Fableman, I think is really, really excellent in a way that it does does deserve, uh, you know, commending. I he think he is caring a lot in this film, carrying the different tones and is really selling like the whole uh uh experience of growing up through this. I, I think the film is just it really needs him to be great in this thing for it to work. And he is pretty great in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It begins with this little child actor who is terrible. He was trash. <laughs> I, I can love a movie and still tell you when the kid's not good. But that little kid had the eyes that Spielberg wanted. And yeah. boy, do you get a beautiful shot of his blue eyes. Gabriel is leagues better. 
poor kid. I think they had contacts on him because when you zoom in on him, you you can notice it a little bit, and it gives you the look that Spielberg wanted. But I'd say that that's one of the little nitpicks that I would take a, a, away from him. That in order to get uh, him to lead it, you have some close-ups that that aren't as perfect. But I, I'm curious to see where he takes it from here because one, he's a short king, so shout out him. And two, I thought <laughs> I thought he got it down. And I've been loving all of his interviews talking about how uh, you never picture Spielberg with a cigar. But every time he talks about it, he's kind of like leaked it. He's like, we're on Skype. And it's a cigar. And we're on Skype. It's a cigar. And he's always got a cigar. And when we talk about a cameo at the end of the movie, he kind of yeah. like leaks at how beautiful it is that Spielberg became his idol. It's so great. Um, I, I also love in listening to some of the behind the scenes interviews, Spielberg talked about how he was talking with Gabriel over Zoom. And Gabriel insisted on talking to him to try and uh, evoke his, you know, uh, presence yeah. a little bit more. And he called him out on having kind of like a dead upper lip when he smiles. What so South Park did? <laughs> so he's able, so he like, it is it, noticing these things and really evoking them in his performance. I think it's a very, very yeah. uh, good it's performance his posture. from Gabriel He gets his posture down right the yeah. way he enters the room. It's yeah. good. He did good. Uh, we also have to shout out, if we're talking about the Oscars potential, uh, the boy, Janusz Kaminski, because this is a gorgeously shot film. Just the way in which some shots will start on a really gorgeous frame and then very casually move and land on another really gorgeous frame. People have talked about how Spielberg just has this supernatural sense of space and how to use space. And combined with Kaminsky, they just make some really, really beautiful moments seem effortless. Yep. And they, they talked about their storyboarding of it. I remember during the West Side uh, press run last year, everyone was showcasing those little tiny uh, models that he had in order to be able yeah. to do the, 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 I think it was a school sequence. And hearing them talk about how they'll literally change stuff up on the spot. There's this like crazy thing when you become one of the best of the best, right? Where people will ask you for advice. And how are you supposed to tell them it's in the gut, right? <laughs> like these guys know how to film something just off of pure instinct when you've been doing it for so long. And there are so many sequences in this movie that I thought they they absolutely killed it uh, and were fantastic. And you, you had even mentioned, um, we had both listened back on some interviews. Uh, there was one thing I caught at the beginning because a lot of the movie is Spielberg directing young Spielberg direct his early films. Mm-hmm. So in that, it's funny watching him direct those movies because I felt like, oh, he must be correcting some shots here. There's in particular one sequence where he uh, we see Spielberg finally learn how to direct, right? And he's trying to tell this kid, you know, you're in the war, have all of these feelings. But then he doesn't really shoot his face. He shoots him from the back. <laughs> but the way the Fablemans is showing it to you, we are seeing him from the front. Mm-hmm. And it just clicked on me. I was like, there's no way that Spielberg older is fixing in the Fablemans the shot that he didn't get. And you're like, Art, look at this interview. And I find him saying multiple times that he's cheating and finding a way to do that. I remember one interviewer mm-hmm. goes, oh, I'm not allowed to do that in, in, in my job. I would get, I couldn't get away with that. And people goes, good thing I'm a filmmaker. Then it is just impeccable business. And yeah. that's part of that fourth wall breaking. This idea mm-hmm. where he can revisit a, history, uh, a moment in the past. And then and then in true Spielberg fashion, fashion try to fix it. Um yeah, no, all of that with the cinematography, it, it really, there's a lot of technique, but it's invested in emotion. Yeah. And I think you feel it in, in every movement of the camera. 
Absolutely. And he is able to really evoke uh, such strong feelings. Like I, I, One of the things that I love is how easily Spielberg is able to like put on a genre coat in moments. Uh, th- there's like a moment where Michelle Williams gets a phone call and the way that it's portrayed, it's like straight out of Poltergeist or something. Like it yes, really sir. is uh, surreal and, and upsetting. Exactly. Like he, he is able to just in a moment bring in all these like like genre feelings. There's that sequence also early in the film when they uh, go outside during the tornado that feels like a classic Spielberg action set piece and that he's mm-hmm. able to Closer. weave all this stuff in, uh, in addition to the the student film moments to, to kind of get, give extra bombast and extra flair to a coming of age story is classic Spielberg. It, it, he's really great at doing this stuff. Uh, I'm blanking on it. What's it? What's it called when a uh, a quarterback who never made it wants their son to do it? They live uh, with, they live vicariously. Live, yeah, vicariously. Vicariously through them, right? I have never seen a coming of age vicarious film because as he's <laughs> showing us, you see when the kids are turning the corner in their bikes, that would end up being ET. You're also mm-hmm. kind of seeing not just the origins to his movies, but the origins to the shots that you grew up watching. Yeah, and it's beautiful to know that those would be the early sequences the short film that he was going to show them for saving private ryan is beautiful all of the extra little moments where you're seeing what invoked what would be et uh what's what's the space one with the when the people come over and it's literally his parents close encounters of the third kind is about a musician and a technician and how they come together and they're able to communicate with someone on the other side yeah. I don't know. I feel like some people, like, they're like, well, Spielberg didn't make this movie. It wouldn't be as good. And I'd be like, I think there's still something there. But it is mm-hmm. specifically because Spielberg made it. Because it's yeah. about his life. It's such a weird critique because it's like talking about a documentary and being like, well, if none of these events wouldn't happen, didn't happen, it wouldn't be a doc. Of course it wouldn't. Like, I, I'm so confused as to how we're critiquing a biopic being about a man. I, Absolutely. I don't know. I think it, it, it elevates a lot of the moments within the film because you see... Uh, how they carried on throughout his career. And I, I thought it worked beautifully. Let's talk about Seth, bro. Let's talk about Seth, bro. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's actually... Do you want to just talk about Seth or should we get into spoilers? We can talk Seth with some spoilers because I think this is where All you right. get the big through line that he hid from his parents until they died. Yeah. So uh, we are going to dive a little bit more into some details about this film because it's, there's so much interesting here. And I think we want to also talk about the ways in which this is not like the the sunny reflection on his childhood that some people want to portray this film as. And there is like a messier quality to it, maybe like a, a some upsetting moments that he, he's depicting. I don't know. It, it's, it's a it's a fascinating piece. So we're going to start with spoilers and talk a little more about Seth Rogen's character, uh, who <laughs> uh, is cause of a lot of the drama in the film in a way that I I didn't expect when I saw Seth Rogen added to the cast list. But what did you think about Benny? Um, I completely forgot that he was in Freaks and Geeks, which Spielberg produced. So it's almost <laughs> like they're finally working together to the fullest extent. Um I thought he did a fantastic job, and I know that it recently, um, the writer, I don't know I'm blinking on his name, he Tony had come Kushner. out in one of the circles. Yeah, and Tony was talking about how he was really worried about him because he goes, this guy improvs a lot. He's going to mess up the script. He said he didn't improv once. In yeah. fact, he came in early to study Spielberg. 
He said he uh, cut his hair, like he his hairline, he took it more and more back in order to look like the real Benny who they knew in real life. And he said that people were going to notice it when he went to parties. And he's like, no, nah, I guess my hairline was already receding because of it. <laughs> He gave it his all. He plays this friend of the family who's damn near a brother, an uncle. Um, I love those little nuances where the uh, the mother, I think it's the mom of the dad, doesn't like him. <laughs> yeah. But that mom also has a sequence that uh, Judd Hirsch also has that when they're cleaning the table, they always keep the dish. I don't know, those little <laughs> moments like that that I also love that I, I want to make sure I mention. Um, the, the plastic tablecloth With stuff. the plastic tablecloth, there's always someone still eating the meal. They're enjoying yeah. it. Uh, but what he means to the family is something that I didn't realize how big it was because he spoke about this guy who you would think almost tore the family apart because he's not just the dad's best friend. He's the dad's best friend who almost kept them from going on to the next big thing at IBM because he was never going to be that big of a technician. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, he couldn't make his wife smile as much as his best friend. <laughs> and that's where it gets really tricky. And I think it's yeah. such a profound, mature way to make a freaking movie about your parents and people are missing that. Yeah, there is. this is a film that is overloaded with empathy in a way that I think is catching some people off guard because it is a film about a divorce and about the impact that that divorce had on not just the kids, but the, the parents, or at least Paul Dano uh, in, in the role of his father. Uh, but it's not a film that really wants to lay the blame on anyone and instead really wants to point out the amount of love that all the people involved have for another. And a lot of that is riding on uh, this Benny character who, uh, by by being the sort of light of energy in the film that draws uh, Mitzi, Michelle Williams's character, towards him, uh, and you see the breadcrumbs kind of being laid before they're all shown to you, uh, it, it's, it's just... It ends up being this really interesting thing. I think one of my favorite lines from the film uh, is he gives to his sister who says that uh, he, she, Mitzi's character, Mitzi always laughed hardest at Benny's jokes, but their dad was her best audience. And I think it plays to sort of the conflicted nature of these these complicated relationships and that like sometimes there are people who really do sustain you in one way but don't fulfill you in another who gave him the camera? He knows good and damn well that at the end he wants to gift him this camera. He slips him yeah. the, the money only to slip it back to him. To not recognize that the person who you feel tore your family apart is also the reason why you continued making movies. You had mentioned that line about the dad being the mom's biggest fan. Yet she never understood the dad. It always took Seth Rogen's character to do the let me explain for his jokes just so yeah. the mom could get it. You know, yeah. and there was one the, the, the what we were talking about earlier about the artists and the family and that we're always seeing Spielberg as obviously going to be the artist and his uncle was the artist. Even Michelle Williams was the artist who they are arguing chose the family instead. And she's trying to get back into playing piano. I feel they dismiss the father as never being creative. And this mm-hmm. whole movie. This whole movie is like his love letter to his dad. His father, who never knew that he knew that his mom had an affair with another person. Mm -hmm. He let his father die. And his mom and him kept that a secret for so long. And in that 60 Minutes interview that I showed you, she showcases to Stephen his dad on video saying, Stephen never knew about the divorce. And Stephen just made a movie saying, sorry, dad, I did. He is the opening line of this film, letting little Sammy know, 
this is how movies work. You think the biggest yeah. director of all time just got it from the creativity of his mom or created the revolution that was uh, Jurassic Park, that was right. Jaws, that was all of these insane movies that have been created. If it wasn't for the technological advancements that his dad taught him, his dad buys him the editing machine. Mm-hmm. Not even, for him. Even though he's reluctant at first, he does he do it. He told him no. Yeah. He bought it because he wanted him to make his mom happy. It had nothing to do with the kid's passion. Yeah. And it's and in we... that project that he's doing that leads him to figure out that there's an affair going on to begin. It's such, it's goosebumps, bro. It's, yeah. it's such an insane and mature way to look back at what you would consider a fault, but also recognizing if this didn't happen, as much as I heard in the time, it led mm-hmm. me down the path to be the creator, the director that I am today. Right, and it's very easy to look at Spielberg as this insanely creative person, as this artist, this this genuinely great film artist, and be like, he got that from his creative mom, his mom's side of the family, who are also nah. these artists. But constantly, this film is making the argument that he is kind of the balance of both sides. He is the yes. meeting in the middle. There's that wonderful bit in the beginning where they both explain the movie to him, and it's somewhere in the middle where he finds himself. And one of the scenes that I was really struck by in re-watching the film is a moment after he is shown shown uh he shows the western film and he's mm-hmm. talking to his dad in the car and his dad says well what you do yeah. is a lot like what i do you manage yes. people and set expectations and work to achieve a goal and and i think spielberg is making that argument that yes he is a creative but also he is a guy who has this sense of management and has this ability to to control a creative vision because that is his father's influence yeah and i think he's telling his father you too were a creative you too were an artist you too moved your family for your art and eventually chose your art as your whole family moved back. And I think he's acknowledging to him that you thought you were in a family. Because she says it. Her line in the movie, Michelle Williams, is we're a, we're a family full of artists and scientists and we're always fighting with each other. And I think that was disrespectful to the dad because he was an artist all along. And this is him telling him, post his death, he gets the final line in the end of the credits. And again, it's not to his parents. It's to their names. And mm-hmm. to Arnold is the final text up on screen. I, I don't know. I, I think it's beautiful in, in so yeah. many little ways. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a really interesting uh, dynamic that he's able to portray with them. And I think, uh, again, it speaks to some of the nuance that maybe is being overlooked by by reducing this to calling it like some kind of sunny nostalgia pick. I, I, yeah. I like this movie a lot. Um, I... It, and just speaking more about the empathy, it extends beyond his family. I thought it was really interesting uh, the way that he portrays uh, Monica, the Christian girlfriend who gets lo- introduced later in the film. In that, she'll it's be an audience favorite. It's very easy to see her, especially as she's introduced, as this kind of joke. But the the more time we spend, the more depth you see to her character. The more that you see, she's like a fully rounded person who is very kind of aware of what she's doing in their relationship. Uh, and, yeah. and just that he extends people beyond that joke. It, it go, It's with Monica and it's with the bullies too, that they, they are first introduced in this kind of one dimensional way. And through spending some time in the film, you do see greater depth to what's going on there. I, I thought it was pretty fascinating. I will only add one. 
this movie's still dedicated to his parents in the beyond, right? So I think in the back of his mind, he still knows that they're watching and he still wanted to set the record straight that at the end, he didn't take the, the split from the boy either. He did yeah. not smoke the joint. So he knows that his parents are still watching from the afterlife in mm-hmm. some capacity. I do think he made himself a little more nicer than he probably was. I, I, I think Spielberg <laughs> can also have a temper here or there, but he, he did make sure that the main character was as soft as he could be. Um, he... He made him look like he could fly is pretty much what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that maybe speaks to some of Spielberg's tendencies in making films. He's not a guy who likes to make these overly um, angry or, or tortured or nope. conflicting movies. And he, he is a film who uh, he, a filmmaker who even when he's mining upsetting material, he's doing it with with like a gloss and like a, a, a cleanliness sometimes. Um, yeah. So yeah, m- maybe this, the messiness is missing that some people uh, would, would like. And maybe that's why people are responding. That's what, uh, that's what I some people responded, not uh, overtly loving this one, but I think it's so tonally consistent and has a, it's a clear vision of what he's trying to communicate. That stuff yeah. didn't really bother me. I, I think it's asking the movie to be something that the movie is not. I feel you. Because even like his sisters who we haven't brought up, so we should give a mention here, they were like a really big part of the creative process. And again, I feel like some people hear divorce and they think of whatever turmoil they've gone through. But what's crazy is that they are all aware of Benny. And Benny, (laughs) the real life Benny, I think may still be around. I could be mistaken. But every single time that they talked about him in the real world, you know, Seth Rogen was like, oh, you guys are going to feel some animosity. Nothing but great things to say. And that's a perspective that I could even speak on. I don't know about that. I don't know how many people have baby. It's not even a baby daddy <laughs> drama or anything like that. But to yeah. a degree, it is. It's the person who split your family and caused them to live in different states. And yet they mm-hmm. speak nothing but great things about them. Um, they're like all very much aware of the best that they brought out of each other. Um, so I think that is a different tone that people may not be used to. But I like that. I, I like the sequences with Julia Butter um, and and uh, Gabriel where... Even when the family's fighting, all Gabriel can think of is how would he edit this, which is such a sick way to look at it, right? And you know yeah, that Stephen I looks love at it that, that moment. Way. And yeah. That moment is so raw because you know that this man. Once you see this movie, you're like, oh, that's what he based ET on. That's what he based mm-hmm. this movie. That's what he based his whole damn filmography on. It's just been yeah. trying to make the Fablemans, but he had to add an alien. He had to add something else. And I love how he's like, this is for the first time. I'm not making it a metaphor. I'm actually mm-hmm. zoning in on the on the memories. And, and it's also interesting how bittersweet that moment is because he's not able to really focus on his family. He's focusing on how he would portray that moment, how he wants to shoot that That's moment. That's such and it, an artist's creative struggle. Exactly. And <laughs> it speaks so directly to the Judd Hirsch scene oh. in that while you love your family, you yes. love this art more, even more. And, and how that will always get in the way. And I think it, to, to Spielberg, this is sort of like a, a painful confession that, yeah, he yeah. has let his drive and his pursuit of artistry get in the way of his ability to connect with maybe members of his family. I agree. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Keely Karsten. Uh, Julia Butters is great. We've seen her in so many movies. She's been in mm-hmm. Tarantino. Look at her on Spielberg. She's going to have a huge career. We know this already. She yeah. was good. I love that scene when he's editing and she hugs her brother and she looks at him. She's like, wow, this is how you cope. Beautiful work from Julia Butters. But honestly, for a majority of the movie, it was the sister Natalie. Keely Karsten killed it. She's the one who has so many lines. I She's the glue in the family. 
mm-hmm. that that is underappreciated. I think out of all of the Fablements, she is the one who is able to like. There's this one sequence where she yells at them and she says, "Stop yelling at each other," and she like calls them both out for this tick that they're both doing and why they can't yeah. connect with each other. And I'm like. She really surprised me out of all of them. I personally think she's an even better performer than uh, Gabriel in the movie, but I just want to make sure she got her shout out because uh, as siblings, they have a lot that they're going through together and knowing that he made this movie uh, for his sisters right. um, and that they were there a big part of the process, I think uh, adds a specialness to it. Totally. Uh, talking more about that moment with the family, I, what I found to be very interesting about the way that Spielberg uses filmmaking in this film is that it feels like Sammy is often doing it as a way to gain control of situations that upset mm-hmm. him. It begins with that tr- train crash that he can't get out of his mind. And then when he's able to recreate it and, and make a film out of it, he is able to move on from it. Uh, when he learns about his mom's infidelity, what does he do? He edits a movie together about it. To to make it make sense to him. And then that even extends to the bit with the bullies in the end where he makes this summer movie, this uh, summer skip day movie, and portrays the guy who's been uh, hounding him anti-Semitically as this kind of like hero on the big screen. Uh, it's one of the more bizarre moments in the film. Uh, I wanted to know what you thought about it because I, I read some interesting uh, interpretations of it. I think he continued it to his career. I like how you put it. It's him trying to take control of the scenario that if he can put it on film, uh, he's the one editing it and chopping it. It can only go the way that he wants to. He would then make movies where, like we said, in E.T., it's still those same things that he's trying to control. Can he give it a happy ending? I think his parents are gone and now he's realized that this is the one time that I can vent it. He was waiting for it. Um, I'm curious. What, what did you hear? Uh, well, I wanted to shout out Noah uh, Noah Gittle, uh, Gittle uh, on Twitter, who put together a pretty uh, fantastic fre- thread talking about the anti-Semitic bullies and how they are sort of uh, their story is sort of an echo for the rise of Hollywood and how in the beginning Hollywood was this industry that was created by a lot of Jewish producers and how uh, it it became this concern for many in the United States about the like Jewish influence that the movie industry would potentially have. Uh, Interesting. But, but that they were then able to align themselves with all of these, uh, not these uh, non-Jewish people uh, and, and the way, when they were able to align themselves with people like Fairbanks and Pickford and Grant uh, and Hepburn, that was when the industry was more widely Flourished. embraced. And I, I don't know, it's just it's a deep reading of a small, bizarre moment that I wouldn't pa- put past uh, guys like Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner to be commenting on. Uh, especially given that like Spielberg himself seems a little bit like conflicted on his memories of the bully. Uh, I I know you read that one interview where he was talking about uh, getting a call from the bully uh, after he released his first film and finding out he was a cop. I guess Spielberg said a cab. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think the one thing that uh, I saw a split with is that most critics found the uh, breaking of the fourth wall. Like I might put you in my movie one day as being a little too cringy. And then I've seen like, I love it. Mainstream audiences eat that up. 
and I'm on the mainstream audience side. I don't find it cringy because I also love the ending of this movie and what he does yeah. there. I think that's beautiful. And uh, I yeah, I, I think that's an interesting read. I'll have to check out that thread. That's a, that's a fascinating look at it because I feel like a lot of filmmakers who have been doing those love letters are also people who have been working for decades and know the industry and know the ins and outs um, and would be able to comment on something like that. So Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'd be curious to look more into it. You want to talk about that ending a little bit? Let's talk about that ending because people been spoiling it. Oh, yeah, I, I it's it a is frustrating. Beautiful. I'm really glad I got to see this at TIFF because I was able to enjoy it. Uh, and having completely forgotten that I heard that Lynch is in the film. Yeah. So to see him walk in and not only it's him, but he's playing John Ford. What a f- really cool uh, just cherry on this movie. Uh, it's there, everything. There's so much worth reading into about this from Laura Dern being the conduit between Steven Spielberg and John, uh, David Lynch. Isn't that awesome? It's so cool. <laughs> and, I, like, and, I already knew the moment that she was in Jurassic Park. She was like, yeah, I use Laura Dern. I was like, well, of course, Jurassic Park. And then obviously Laura yeah. Dern, after everything she's done for Finch, I'm pretty sure she could ask anything. But what mm-hmm. a beautiful thing because I, I, you just automatically know both of these men looked up to the same director, didn't they? And mm-hmm. then you think about it. They both started at the same time on complete opposite sides the most mainstream director the same year i just heard that the other day yeah i don't know i think it's really cool dude yeah i I think it it is the perfect casting choice yeah it's it becomes this really interesting way for not only the both of them to honor honor a filmmaker that they love but for spielberg to kind of pay homage to another great that is his contemporary uh and I, i you know (laughs) <laughs> it's funny. I've seen a lot of people making comments like Spielberg needed somebody to have the gravitas of the greatest director of all time. So we brought in David Lynch. But like he he's also such a unique performer. He, he does, you know, he acts sporadically. But when he does, I always love the energy that he brings to the scene. And he's got this kind of like cantankerous aggression in his voice that yeah. is so... It's such a contrast to how sunny a lot of the film is otherwise treated. Uh, I, I think it's a really lovely grace note for the film. Uh, I agree with you. The way he says the weather <laughs> is in the, <laughs> in the most stoic way possible. But I think it adds another element to what he's saying. This may not be the Sammy that you see. It's not a part of him. But it's something that he needed to be a part of that will stick with him. That very stoic person who's letting you know very simply this is what you need to be looking out for. And those are words, just like when his uncle yelled at him, it's a moment in time that sticks with him. And yeah. uh, I thought that was fantastic. But I've read reviews for the movie that I find funny because of this casting. I, have you ever read a review that makes you more excited for the movie? Even though the, <laughs> yeah, you know, the review can be like review. two or three stars and you're like, oh, what you just wrote made me really like it. And it was this idea <laughs> that Spielberg's always been the guy to be mainstream. And obviously David Lynch, complete opposite side. Mm-hmm. And, and claiming that this movie of divorce, he somehow found a way to make it too mainstream and not artsy enough. And I'm like, so Spielberg doubled down on being Spielberg? I'm like, I think it's, <laughs> I don't know. It sounded like such a great review for what they thought they were going for. Uh, I, I think the casting of David Lynch showcases, I'm recognizing who's on the opposite side and I'm not going to do what your review says and be that director. Go to that director for that. I am this guy. And then what a beautiful sign off at the end. Have you heard the original before the uh, horizon being switched? What are you, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Judd Hirsch came out and said in a panel that originally the switch of the end of the horizon moving and, you know, being a bit mm-hmm. for the camera, which I know you're going to mention in a bit, was 
uh, supposed to be Spielberg in the back yelling, cut, and it goes to credits. <laughs> what do you feel? That's great. I, I think what they settled on is even better. I um, agree, because do... Judd Hirsch was like, I wanted this one. And Spielberg was like, that was draft one. <laughs> that did not make it through the edit. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that final little note of the camera moving up is, is so wonderful. In fact, I, I'll play a little bit from uh, the Directors Guild, Directors mm-hmm. Cut podcast. There was an interview uh, where Spielberg was talking about the Fablemans with Paul Thomas Anderson. And PTA wanted to find, know a little bit more about how they decided to get that final shot come up with the very 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 end on the day or did you think of that when and I, what I mean by the very end is the adjustment of the camera for the horizon line <laughs> I, I thought about that on the day I was shooting yeah. and I tried it several times and the operator you know was just sort of panning up yeah and I was looking at the monitor and it looked like we he were supposed it. to be looking up there it didn't make the point about what Ford was no. saying and so I got on the camera myself because I did a worse job than my operator Let's and I went ahead and did go. it and it still looked pretty professional. And so what I basically did was when I got into the editing room, I blew the shot up 30% and I sent it to the effects house and I said, make it look like some amateur, you know, just sort of readjusted the camera, put a couple of shakes in there. So it was, it was all an afterthought. Oh, it's brilliant though. It's how good is that? Wow. That was one of the questions that I was asking. I was like, do you think he was the one to touch it? Well, I guess that answers why originally it would have been him saying Final Cut. It doesn't move. And why he had to do it in the effects then. Absolutely. I, I yeah. have another one for you. They said, yeah, let's he do it. said all of the 16 or 18 millimeter that he shot, mm-hmm. any of it that you see in the movie, it's his hands. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, that's a good you, one. You, he had to get the, in himself and, and do it right. Right. Wow, that's good. Uh, uh, nice. I do want to talk a little bit more about that horizon thing because I've seen some people be confused about like why he's talking about the horizon there and, and wh- whether or not we were supposed to take anything from it. I mean, I think there's a couple different purposes that he, uh, D- John Ford telling him to uh, not put the horizon in the middle and instead put it uh, the top or bottom. Uh, it's more interesting. It means, first of all, I think there is just the joke of the simplicity of the advice that there, there's there's this mythical filmmaker who's made the greatest films of all time and his wisdom is something so simple that like anybody can apply it to their films. But beyond that, there's also just the idea of doing the unexpected, doing something that's not what you've seen before, right? Like don't put the horizon where everybody expects the horizon to be, put the horizon somewhere where only a filmmaker would put it. Somebody who, a real picture maker would put it. So I think there's like that, that double uh, importance to him telling him uh, that putting the horizon in the middle is not interesting. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the fact that it happened that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's that, uh, interview that I put together uh, over on my uh, my YouTube channel and TikTok channel, Multiplex, uh, where I compared uh, Spielberg telling the John Ford story to that final scene in The Fablemans. I won't play uh, the whole thing here, but I'll, I'll put a link in the description to uh, this episode. But it's so cool to see, you know, a decade later from him telling the story, how similar, how exact his like recollection of it is, or the recreation of it is. And it, it just plays great every time. Well, 
It's, it's beautiful. It, it's one of the best ones. So hopefully people are able to go see it unspoiled because <laughs> yeah. that, that is one of the most special moments. Because uh, you even feel it. You don't need to know who David Lynch is or John Ford. It's just a special moment in the movie for the character itself. And then just to know that it, it has bigger implications to what would end up being our, our landscape of cinema and what it would influence, I think is even better. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts on The Fablemans? What was your, what was your favorite, favorite part? of the film uh well one of my favorite parts was even beforehand we haven't said it on this podcast we've brought it before yeah. zach has mentioned the play on the name the fablemans and how it plays with spielberg and i still think that's one of the most yeah. interesting parts totally how uh if you look at just the construction of the name spielberg it's spiel which is kind of like a jewish yiddish word for it to yep. tell a story or, or speak and then berg is just sort of like a common uh, ending for Jewish last names and then fable men's fable being a story and men being another uh, being that. ending for it, yeah it, it it's beautiful and it's kind of crazy that Spielberg found a way to even like clever. turn his name into part of his legend uh, and what makes it, yeah what makes so it beautiful good. is also that by changing it to fable men's you're not just seeing the Spielbergs you're seeing the fable men's you're seeing a family that you can hopefully connect to or see how this this group tries to become artists and such. I was like, every time I try to put Fablemans, it tries to autocorrect because it needs to be <laughs> Fablemans. But yes, uh, yes. Yeah, no, to me, it's just the little moments where he's creating film. I, I, I'm a person who, when I'm sitting in the theater, I like getting the projector shots when someone is watching movies. I love collecting yeah. those shots. At a certain point, I just had to write the whole movie down. Yeah. <laughs> with the way he was editing, the way he was playing with film, this whole movie along with Babylon, along with a, a couple of others from this year is just filmmaking, I don't want to call it B-roll, but shots to have in your collection to cut to. There is a shot where the kid holds the movie. They're like his his, uh, his, hands, his hands become oh, the beautiful. screen. It's just stuff that he's just doing victory laps around. And any of those uh, moments where he's creating film or, or figuring out different things, like how he could put bullet holes. Yeah. Uh, oh, for that his was my favorite film, part, I think. When, when that, he figures uh, out the, the pinholes to get the, yeah. the bullet effect. It's so cool. Uh, uh, I love I love those creating moments. What about you? Yeah, no, yeah, I love that that pinhole moment with the bullet holes because it's just for me evoked uh, all that feeling you get when you are trying to put your own project together and you figure out some kind of like workaround or, or cheat that will work and will look yes, great. Uh, it, it is those filmmaking moments, and and like I said, that Judd Hirsch scene also in particular is um, so wonderful. I think uh, there's just a the wrestling of the t different sides is something that I think speaks to people who've thrown themselves into creative fields. So I highly recommend this one. It is available to purchase at home. It's a theater movie for me. P -V -O -D. I highly implore. Yeah, yeah, leave the theater to go see it. But we've always talked about like leaving the theater, staying at home. Is that price, that premium price at home worth it? I think it's a little too much personally. But mm -hmm. if you were willing to catch one of the best movies of the year... I mean, it's still a combo price for me. Yeah. Go out to the theater, but I guess it costs the same price if you wanted to see it at home. Either way, even it cheaper, is a movie. Even cheaper, maybe. It, it is, might, might be even cheaper. You could pause it, you could watch it again, but it is definitely one to catch before your end of the year list, in my opinion. Absolutely. I think we'll be talking a little bit more about The Fablemans when we get to our Easily. best films of the year uh, in a little bit. We're actually recording that very soon on Intercut. Uh, but yeah. It's it's a really special movie. It's a really magical movie, and I think there's a lot to chew on and talk about and and look at. And uh, it also rewards in a, us in a way that we really love. In that listening to the interviews about this film, it's great. It's all great. Uh, 
It's I beautiful. love that Michelle Williams is now using mitzvah in her regular vocabulary. Like the, the Jewish influences <laughs> clearly worked on oh, her. <laughs> let me hit you with that one. How do you feel about that? Um, that the is casting, obviously... if I may. The casting of non-Jewish actors to play Jewish actors, something Armageddon Time was also faced with, and something that other movies, uh, when, when Latinos try to cast somebody and they may not be it. Curious to hit you with it. Yeah. I mean, it. I do thi- I find it interesting and funny that this conversation is not had nearly as loudly when it comes to Jews, when it comes to other people, especially given that there's a very long history of Jews that are depicted on screen not being uh, played by actual Jews. But, uh, you know, I think it ends up being a conversation that gets muted because Jews do have a pretty decently sized they role run Hollywood, in Zach, the industry. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They, they're The couple Jews in but, Hollywood run it. Um but the yeah, casting I mean, I, of I, one's mother, though, should rely on the person. Exactly. And I, I, the thing is that it's was. one of the it's one of those things that I, I find this to be my sort of response to a lot of like, uh, I guess, like uncomfortable areas in film in that, like, it's yeah. fine in the micro and bad in the macro. And like, I'm totally OK with it here because it works. And Michelle Williams is giving a great performance. And I, I feel like it stays true to the spirit of the characters. But excusing it over and over and over and over again does have a greater effect. And I don't know. I'm not the person who's going to solve that. All All I know is that it didn't really take me out of the Fablemans because they're so good and he's so good at depicting it. Fair enough. It now, feels if true. He, if he would have told it as the Fablemans being Navi and they were all blue, who do you think? <laughs> no, now, now we got a boycott. Now we got a boycott. Then he's clear. <laughs> but yeah, overall, The Fableman's one of the best movies of the year. I am also going through all of the Spielberg movies because we were working on a Spielberg bracket. And damn, is it crazy to just revisit some of those movies and be able to see a lot of the uh, influences and things that would lead or what led to technically those movies being made uh, after the events of what happens in The Fableman. So uh, yeah. stay tuned for a Spielberg bracket that will be coming soon as well. And like Zach said, uh, more mentions of this movie. Definitely. Uh, but that's about all for this edition of After Credits. You can catch more from me, Zach Shevich, by following me on Twitter, Instagram, or Letterboxd, at Zshevich. That's Z-S-H-E-V-I-C-H. And check out my YouTube or TikTok channels where you can find that Fableman scene comparison at Multiplex Show. Art, where can people find more from you? You can find me over at LME Explain on Twitter, on Letterboxd, where I've been logging a lot, and then over here on YouTube and every week on the Intercut Podcast. Yes, you can listen to every episode of the Intercut Podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcatcher is. I like Overcast, and then make sure you're not listening just to the audio feed, but you're subscribed to the video feed as well on YouTube.com slash IntercutPod, where you can catch our bright, smiling faces as we break down the latest in entertainment, find new episodes of our weekend must-watch streaming on our YouTube channel, every Monday, and please leave a comment, like the video, consider heading over to iTunes to give us that much-requested five-star review. Uh, Like our Facebook, follow our Instagram, follow our Twitter. You can also support us on Patreon. All of those are at IntercutPod, and you'll get updates throughout the week from Art, from me, from all the guests that we feature here on Intercut. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, you can't just love something. You also have to take care of it.